as a family, how are we going to lead technology instead of technology leading us? Most families are being completely hijacked by a $1,000 device. Like their relationship with their child is hinging on this device. Katie McPherson is using her experience as a parent, educator, and prevention advocate to positively impact the mental and behavioral health of youth. She's our guest on this episode of Win This Year. Drugs and alcohol. Bullying. Unhealthy relationships. Depression. Internet safety. Substance use. Body image. Self-injury. Suicide. Anxiety. Social media. Kids. Pre-teens. Parenting. Middle school. High school. Adolescents. Teens. Coping skills. Self-care. Relationships. Strategies. Life skills. Prevention. Solutions. Help. Hope. Leadership. Insight. Information. Inspiration. You're listening to Win This Year, the official podcast of Not My Kid, a prevention nonprofit focused on inspiring positive life choices by helping kids, parents, families, and those who work with youth. Informative, interesting, inspiring. Win This Year. Welcome to Win This Year. I'm Shane Watson, Public Information Officer and Prevention Specialist for Not My Kid. Parent, Youth Prevention Advocate, Coalition Chair, and Educational Consultant Katie McPherson joins us today. But first, Win This Year is brought to you by First Check. First Check home drug tests help you protect loved ones from the risks of drug abuse. First Check is the number one pharmacist-recommended brand. It detects up to 14 illicit and prescription drugs and provides over 99% accurate, easy-to-read results in just five minutes, all in the privacy of your home. Go to firstcheckfamily.com and use code WINTHISYEAR to save on your order. Katie McPherson has been a pre-K through 12 educator for the last 23 years. As a school administrator, after recognizing the need for more awareness and education on the impact of screen time, video games, and social media on the development and mental health of her students, she developed her own national platform to share current research and evidence-based best practices to assist students, parents, and schools as we navigate the new landscape of childhood. Katie currently serves as an educational consultant, youth prevention advocate, and chair of One Gilbert, a town of Gilbert, Arizona coalition focused on improving the mental health and wellness of youth with a specific focus on preventing youth suicide. She joins us now on Win This Year. Katie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It is nice to finally have you on the show. We're about a dozen episodes in, and when we were planning the show before it was even a reality, you were one of the first three names on the piece of paper. So it is amazing to have you here. Wow, thanks. I'm honored. In order to fully help our listeners understand and appreciate who you are, where you're coming from, and your career, how would you describe yourself and the work that you do? That's a good question. Um, First and foremost, I'm a mom. And secondly, I'm an educator. I've been on a junior high or high school campus for about 20 years. About three years ago, I was sort of frustrated with what I was seeing over the last 10, 15 years with my students and decided to go on the road. And so locally and nationally, I speak on screen time impact, social media responsibility, youth mental health, and suicide prevention um, alongside of many professionals, preventionists, and people like you guys that not my kid. What motivated you to go into the field of education in the first place? 
both my parents are educators. Um, my stepmother's an educator. My stepfather, although he was in the automotive industry, also was in leadership. So I was just surrounded by educators. It was kind of destined from the start a little bit. The topics that you educate on, you've mentioned a couple of these already. They include suicide, youth mental health, and the ever-changing landscape of social media. Let's start with social media. What would your primary message be to parents of adolescents regarding their kids' social media or technology use? My primary message as we enter 2020 is it's 2020. It's time to step into what I call the digital divide and undivide yourself. Um, working in tandem with your students. Right now, most American families have an us versus them, nagging, taking away devices, dying on a hill about the device itself, and losing relationship with their kids. So I would say know what you're giving, know how to work it, know how to use it, but most importantly, understand that the underdeveloped brain cannot handle the medium that we've handed over. And adult brains also struggle with it. I see adults struggling on social media. It's, you know, if we're going to expect our kids to conduct themselves a certain way, we need to set that example as well. I have seen behavior by adults on almost a daily basis on social media that most parents wouldn't accept from their own children. I love that you mentioned being aware of the device, what the device does, how it works, not only the features, but what are the potential downsides as well, because I've seen with a lot of parents one of two approaches. They're anti-technology, we're not going to have this, we're shutting this down, and that's not good because the world that kids are growing up in, they're going to need that to be students, to be employees, etc. Or I've seen on the other end of the spectrum, unfortunately, I've seen parents that'll give a, a very young child a brand new device, have no idea how it works, not set any ground rules, and then give it to them hoping that they're going to make the right decisions. Yep. So there is an author named Nicholas Katsiris. He wrote, Dr. Nicholas Katsiris wrote Glow Kids, G-L-O-W, Glow Kids, um, one of the best books out there on this topic. But um, one of the things that he outlines in the book is there are three types of digital parents, restrictors, enablers, or mentors. And certainly we're going to have to restrict some things. We're going to have to let some things go, but most importantly, be a mentor. And so I try to get parents to disarm this us versus them approach and really step in and understand how powerful this medium is and that there is a very good side to social media and there's a very dark side and that we have to support and guide our students through that. I love that collaborative tone. If we're going to be that mentor to our child when it comes to social media, when it comes to technology, how do we strike that balance when it comes to allowing our kids use of social media and technology while still mitigating risk? Where is that sweet spot and how do we achieve that? For me, it's really, and this is something I learned from Kristen Poland, who's your CEO, um, the rule of five. Five years before your child's going to be exposed to something, you have to teach them about it. Drugs, alcohol, sexting, all sorts of things that we come up against that are big, high-risk high things that students are getting into at very young ages. And so for me, it's outlining back to the book Glow Kids, digital candy versus digital vegetables. So showing them the light side of technology and that it is an advancing tool, but the dark side is this digital candy and that too much digital candy can really overwhelm your brain. And so it is difficult as a parent of four girls myself to supervise and monitor 
all of their devices, laptops, iPads, iPods, you name it, they have it, phones. Um, for me, it's really about incremental trust. Can my children be decent human beings online? And when they're not, what and how do I hold them accountable? Um, most people are pretty arbitrary in their approach to that. And when you mentioned holding them accountable, you asked the question, how do I hold them accountable? How do you hold them accountable? What is the way that you do that without doing, as you said earlier, just completely taking the device entirely? How do you do that in a way that doesn't feel punitive yet works to correct the behavior in a positive way? What does that look like? Well, first you recognize that developing brains are still developing. And so they need mentorship and they need you to sit next to them and say, hey, when you posted this, this is sort of a goofy move. What were you after? Tell me more about this. And then you actually sort of shut up and you listen to what they were after. And most humans, adult or children, are after a couple of things on social media. I want to be seen, I want to be heard, and I want to be loved. And if I'm not getting it from you in person, I can get on Instagram and post a photo in two seconds and I can get seen, heard, and loved really quickly. So recognizing the medium you've given and then the conversation with your student is the most important part of the relationship with technology, is putting the devices aside, not yanking them away. And if you do yank them away, what are you replacing that with? What's the healthy outlet? What's the healthy boundary? And what kind of conversation goes along with it? I love that. Um, I, I love that approach where it that does not feel punitive. It's, it's relationship-based. Um, and I really like that you seek to understand the motivation. You asked, what were you thinking when you posted this? And knowing those three things that not only are adults and kids after online, that sounds like what we're all after in life in general. Those are the three things that we want. The why, and we've talked about the why on prior episodes, whether it comes to substance use or anything else, knowing the answer to that can begin to point you in the direction of a solution. What is that healthy thing that we can replace that behavior with? What are some of the fundamentals that you advocate um, being included? If, if a parents are going to create something like a technology agreement in advance, what are some of the fundamentals that you, uh, you advocate to parents being included on that list? Well, I think you need a baseline. My personal and professional baseline is how are academics, how are social, emotional, wellness, how is that going? And um, how are they doing in their friendship group? So if any of those things are tanking, then technology is a privilege, not a right. So if grades are going down and um, behavior is going down at school and with you and friendships aren't going very well and you're noticing a decline in that, then they can't handle the medium and they need to pull back a little bit. Um, another thing would be what are your family's values and what are your non-negotiables? My non-negotiables are... No sending body parts, <laughs> no sharing private information, no using profanity, you know, whatever it is that's a non-negotiable that has to be outlined at age nine. Like 15 is way too late to be having conversations about sexting when the median age of pornography exposure is eight to nine. Um, it's out there. They're doing it. It's rampant. They don't know what to do about it, and they're afraid to come to you about it. So Technology contract, and then I'd say secondly, first and foremost, is a central charging station that all devices go on overnight at 8 p.m. All devices have to be out of bedrooms, bathrooms, etc. They shouldn't be there in the first place, but nothing good happens after 9 p.m. on technology for kiddos. 
I was going to ask that when you said, you know, shouldn't be back in the bedroom in the first place. Do you advocate technology being used in like a common area of the house when it comes to kids? I do. And um, Detective Frank Griffiths, who used to work with me, he's a um, retired special agent with the AG's office, cyber crimes. Um, he said, where the carpet is most worn in the house. I'll never forget that. That's a simple way to break that yeah. down. I like that a lot. Yeah. You mentioned earlier... Um, some positive things coming from social media. You know, a lot of times we're so heavily focused on the problem, on the issue. What are some of the positive things that you've seen come from social media and kids and preteens and teens being allowed access to it? There's so many talented youth that have their own YouTube channels, whether it's music or art or dance or whatever it is. They're genius, even video game players. Um, I also think that I have trained students to use Instagram and Twitter to get full ride college scholarships. So, um, colleges want to see a digital presence. So if Shane has a 4.2 at Desert Mountain and Katie's at Chaparral with a 4.2 and you play soccer and I run track and you dug a hole in Costa Rica as part of a mission and so did I, what's the difference between Shane and Katie? So the first place I'm going to go, whether I'm an employer, I'm offering an internship, or I'm a college admissions officer, is to your platform to see what do you look like, what do you act like, and what do you want the world to know about you. So I help kids use social media for good to show who they are so that they can have futuristic opportunities. It absolutely is an incredible outlet. I love seeing the things that have gone on, not only in terms of talent, dancing, singing, writing, things like that. I've also seen young people use it as a way to encourage other young people. I've seen some things created. There was a Twitter account that was created. This is probably five or six years old now, this story, at a high school that was used to uplift other students. They were using that Twitter specifically to say nice things about other kids. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if we're going to talk about the balance, we do need to talk about the, some of the potential downsides uh, regarding social media. Do you see a connection between unhealthy social media use and youth suicide? Is there a link there? Is there a connection? And if so, how is social media potentially a factor in some of those situations? I think the world, <laughs> fearful parents and parents in general want to blame something for suicide. And so it's easy to blame phones or it's easy to blame kids these days. It's easy to blame all these things, right? Um, I, it's so much more complex than that. And you know that as a preventionist, like suicide has so many moving parts to it. Do I, you know, I'm just going to tell you, like after supervising 60,000 students and seeing the uptick in suicide, I do think um, when we offer a medium for students to inflict pain on others, and have pain inflicted on them, and have the rumination loop of your brain going all day and possibly all night, we're going to see some correlation and we're going to see some causal effects. The issue for me becomes when you see all of these moral panic issues or articles about, you know, teen su suicide is up, it must be social media. I think we need to be really careful because there are, let's say, 55,000 of my students who use social media, got over the hump of some yucky stuff, and they're still here and they're doing really well. So I think it really is the individual user, and it really depends on what else is going on in their life. So I personally am not willing to say social media and phones cause suicide. I like that because not only as a prevention specialist, but as an assist suicide intervention trainer, like you said, suicide is very nuanced. 
there's a lot of aggravating factors. There's a lot of pieces, stressors that add up and build up. When I asked that question, what I was thinking of, um, I remember there were a handful of suicides, maybe close to a dozen, the majority over in the UK that were partially, at least partially linked to Ask FM and bullying and harassment that occurred on there. And when I saw the overwhelming response, yes, in those situations, Ask FM, social media technology was an aggravating factor, but I saw much more of a sweeping response like you're talking about in that this is bad all the way across the board. And that doesn't benefit us either because I've noticed that with kids, if somebody takes this stance of technology is negative, you lose them at that point. They've disconnected from anything that you're trying to tell them. Not only are they disconnected, but they're working around you with a burner phone and they're doing some really, really risky stuff. So if we don't stop saying, like when I do a student assembly, kids say to me, these are the three things my parents say to me about my technology. You're burning your brain out. Whatever you do, don't post something stupid or you're not going to get into college. And whatever you do, please don't you know, send a nude photo or something or you're never going to get a job and you're probably going to go to jail. So those are the three messages that most teenage students tell me. And so if we don't stop, you know, with the negativity, they're going to continue to just work around us. And, and that's completely focused on the don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. We do a great job of saying what not to do. We need to do a better job of saying here's what you can do. If you're seeking that outlet, you're seeking validation, whatever it is, here's a better way to go about it. Yeah. We need to give that alternative path to those kids. Yeah. So we were on the topic, and we are on the topic of suicide, and I want to back up just a little bit. I want to be clear with parents. When we say youth suicide, I want our listeners to understand what we mean by that. What is the lower end of that range that you are aware of when it comes to youth suicides? Um, well, I live in South Chandler, and we have lost two 10-year-olds in the last year and a half. So 10 to 14 is the leading cause of death in the state of Arizona for youth. 10 to 14. That's, I mean, that's, I'm aware of that, but when, when I think about that, when I think of a 10-year-old, my daughter just turned seven. I mean, that is very, very young. I have two 10-year-olds in my house. I have twins that are 10. <laughs> um, you know, they're playing with Shopkins and slime. The thought of them thinking, I don't want to be here anymore, is absolutely frightening and horrifying. How old are all four of your girls, by the way? Um, currently 10, 10, 12, and 13. Wow. You have your hands full. A little bit. I have one. She's seven. There's two of us and one of her. Yeah. And she still has the upper hand sometimes. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and by the way, the stories that you share about the four of them are, are absolutely hilarious. You and Geronimo Montano that we had on for multiple earlier episodes have the best parent <laughs> stories I have ever read on a consistent basis, too. Yeah. No shortage of content. And I love that you, I mean, you highlight it in such a positive way. It, it's it's endearing, and you can tell that you love them very much. It's, you know, it's not the typical, it's not parent frustration. I, I, I love the stories. The stories are fantastic. When it comes to uh, preventing youth suicide, as well as numerous other behavioral health issues, one of the biggest tools we have is healthy communication. However, some people may not know what healthy communication looks like, what that means. How is we? How can we as parents best communicate with our kids in order to be able to connect with them? I think as an administrator watching for so many years, I think the key is, number one, are you as the adult ready to have the conversation? Or is your brain ready to have the conversation? If you're hyped up, your kid's going to be hyped up, right? 
So if they're in trouble with you or something's conflictual or they're not meeting your expectations, I think you have to be in a space and a time where you can have the conversation to begin with. And secondly, I think most importantly, is really understanding those attachment needs. What your kid is after is, well, every human, I want to be seen, I want to be heard, I want to be loved. And so are we attuning to those needs as we're listening? Are we getting down in the ditch with our kids and validating and getting really vulnerable? Um, I have seen at the junior high and high school level, so many parents really want to communicate in such a healthy way but sometimes we shift from their pain to ours. So they tell us, like, I just somebody just broke up with me or my teacher was a jerk. And we start with their pain, but then we're like, well, in 1994, I got broken up with too, and it was so hard, and his name was – and, like, all of a sudden it's about us and not about them. So staying in the ditch with them – and one of my favorite therapists in the East Valley is Travis Webb, and he really taught me what true connection is, and it's vulnerability plus validation equals connection. So when you climb down in the ditch with your kid, get vulnerable, validate, that's when you're going to get the really good communication. If you don't get to the point where you're dominating the conversation and making it about you, do you advocate in order to have that empathic connection Sharing a story, though, if you can say, I, I do know what that feels like because it did happen to me, do you still advocate that as long as you keep it within balance and in its appropriate place? I love one-liners like, I understand how you feel. This once happened to me, but we're living in a different time. Tell me what it's like for you because most often their pain is on social media. Their pain is on a text message. Their pain is on a direct message. We didn't have the no. amplification of the pain. So, yes, I totally advocate the empathic response, but making sure it just doesn't become about you and, you know, Patrick <laughs> in 1994. <laughs> it becomes it becomes a lecture at that point. And you can actually you can see the moment where the eyes begin to glaze over. It happens fairly quickly. The attention span is fairly short. And then you've missed the whole point of what you were trying to do with that mm -hmm. connection. Mm -hmm. What is what are some other things that maybe, you know, in addition to dominating the conversation or getting too far back in the past and references that don't resonate with them. What are some other things, maybe well-intentioned, that we're doing when we're trying to communicate or trying to connect that are actually hurting rather than helping? I hear most often from teens, especially my parents either overreact or underreact. And all I really want them to do is listen. And so listening is really an art. Many of us didn't really have great role models of listening. And so really, again, getting quiet, having a space to do it. I'm, I really recommend having short, concise conversations in the car when you're like driving somewhere. I have golden conversations with my girls on a variety of topics when we're driving in the car. I just have one of them and we're going somewhere alone. I think it doesn't have to be at the kitchen table. And I actually don't think that's a great venue anyways. Um, moving bodies for boys is an incredible space, walking and talking shoulder to shoulder and really just understanding that a boy across the table from anyone, it's a really uncomfortable space for him. And I will have parents say to me, so are you saying that I should never look my child in the eye and have them across the table? Absolutely not. But there's a time and a place to hold them accountable, so to speak, and love them. You can do both at the same time while driving in the car. 
I like that because um, in our Project Rewind Early Intervention Program, one of the things that we talk about is family dinners. We talk about the cost of Columbia study of the, the effect, the benefit of regular family activities or dinners. And a dad who had gone through the program, I saw him about a year and a half later at his son's school, did a presentation there on bullying, and he recognized me and he came up and he talked to me. He was the single dad of a 16-year-old son. And he said, hey, I want to talk to you about that dinner thing. We tried the dinner thing, and it was it was two guys awkwardly staring at each other from across the dinner table. It was weird. He said, here's what worked with my son, and it's exactly what you just said. When we got side by side, not across from each other, and we were working on our truck out in the garage, that's when he opened up to me. Do you see a split between genders in how you approach the conversation? And you mentioned what works better with young men. Do, what do you see with girls? Um, I take a bi-strategic approach. So one of the things that I worry most about my girls after seeing so many girls come into my office is that rumination loop of the brain never slowing down and getting the strategy. So I allow them two loops of the story and then I come in with, or the other parent comes in with a strategy like, okay, we've heard that you're in pain. So now what are we going to do about it? Let's strategize. What can you do with Chloe tomorrow when she's a jerk to you? Or what happens at the lunch table? You know, somebody excludes you. What could you try? Because if we leave girls in a space where they're going over and over and over and just venting and they never get the strategy, strategy, we're really setting up the neural pathway to become a permanent neural pathway. And that's where we see some of the obviously self-harm and the things that we worry about come in. So I really think with girls... They're very limbic and emotive, and boys can be limbic and emotive too, but they show it in a different way. What about nonverbals? Are there certain nonverbals that you recommend, you know, body language, facial expression, or whatever, to create a better connection and what to avoid? So as, as somebody who's guilty of doing this, I used to have 95% of my day was spent with student discipline. 95% of it was mostly boys, really, truly, in my office, teenage boys in my office, and I sat across from them, they would look down or away, and I read that as defiance. That was actually a brain saying, I'm not ready to have this conversation with you, lady. I'm still hyped up. And so I had some training, and um, I just walked and talked. I'm like, hey, we're going to go down to the gym. I have to run an errand. We're going to get a drink of water. Water will immediately dissipate the cortisol in the brain. Um, there's a study out of Harvard called, um, the author of it is Michelle Icard. She calls it Botox Brow. Um, teenagers misread facial cues almost 50% of the time. So they um, did this study where they sent young boys, 9 through 12 years old, through an MRI machine and put a mean mom face on the top of it and, you know, had them all hooked up with electrodes. And the whole brain just lit up, you know, the limbic system, especially with mean mom face. And then they put a flat, you know, flat affect mom face and nothing lit up. And so often teenagers will say to us, why are you mad at me? Why are you looking at me like that? When we've literally had no conversation yet. And so nonverbals between moms and males are, are really important. Um, I also think your posture, your tone, your pace, your volume, all of those things are really important. And so that goes back to, are you ready to have this conversation with your adult brain? Because if you're not ready, all of those things will be derailing for yourself. What if you come in cool, calm, and collected, 
uh, you've composed yourself, you've mentally prepared yourself, and you come in and your teen does or says something that you feel causing emotions to rise up into you. What do you advocate at that point? Do you take a time out? Do you say, I need to take a moment and take a breath? How do you not lose what you're attempting to do there, but manage to recompose yourself? I think it's important, again, moving bodies, drinking water, and really allowing time for reparation. So if it's not the right time and you're reading it, can you stand a half hour, like meet me back at the kitchen table, we'll go for a walk after dinner? Like some things can wait. And so I think that wait time is essential for teens because if they feel like they're in trouble with you, you're not going to get the mileage out of the relationship that you're after. If we are having that conversation with them because there is a behavior that needs to be corrected or needs to be modified, how do we go about it in a way that's both positive, which we've really been highlighting so far, but then also making sure that that's effective as well? I think, and again, I learned this from Travis Webb, I think most importantly, and this is a school issue as well, behavior is a symptom of unmet attachment needs. So Travis describes it as the kids that walk into his office are petitioning for freedom, safety, and connection. They want a secure base. So any conversation you're having with a child when you feel like maybe he's not you know, being responsible or not being accountable for his actions, I think it's really important to understand that the behavior in front of you is like a smokescreen. The dysregulated emotions are where the work needs to happen. So a lot of parents will say, well, I love what you're saying, and I want to attune to those needs, but I want to hold him accountable. What about his crappy behavior? I'm like, you can love him and say things like, I love you, but when you push your brother into the wall, that's not respectful or appropriate. So what can we do next time? Let's work on a strategy that works for you, that when you feel like you're going to push your brother into the wall, what can we do next time? That's what kids these days, especially this generation or after, is strategy, strategy, strategy. But most adults at home or at, and at school are so busy talking to them, we never offer the skill and strategy. Do you advocate if you're attempting to modify behavior, follow-up, continued, ongoing conversations? Because I know sometimes when parents will say, I had the conversation. I had the talk. We sat down and we talked about it. But if it's especially if it's a long-term problem, a short-term solution to, or a short-term approach typically isn't going to solve that. Do you recommend ongoing things, ongoing conversations and where do you find the balance to continue following up without them feeling like, oh, we're bringing this up again? I do things like sticky notes on their mirror. Like, I noticed you did this yesterday. That's such an improvement from whenever. Or you're doing a great job on X, Y, Z. Like, and I say nothing. Like, I just stick it on the mirror and I keep walking. And it doesn't have to be lengthy and it doesn't have to cost money to tell your kid they're doing a great job. I even stick them, like, in their books or in their pockets. And so they're at school and they're like, oh, thanks for the sticky note. I mean, it's not that hard. So something I do with my daughter, and I, I've often wondered about this, is you know, when when I notice her doing something positive, I'm, I'm very frequently telling her, like, that's, you know, I really appreciate that. Is there a point where that becomes a negative thing? Can you do that too much? Can you be telling them, because, you know, we talked about sending kids out into the real world. And they're going to go out in the real world, and people are not going to tell them every time they do something right, hey, you did something great here. Granted, she's seven. She's got a while before she's going to be out there in the real world. Sure. 
but how do you, you know, build them up and build that self-esteem, but not overdo it? Because I'm starting, I feel like I'm starting to read and see more now telling, you know, telling parents not to overdo with the compliments and things like that. Is it possible to do it too much? Um, yeah, I mean, I think you can build a sense of entitlement, but I think what I see most often with the crippling and crumbling of some of our kiddos is parents and teachers and administrators and coaches sometimes intervening too soon and not giving the student agency. So if there's a crappy situation that they're in, allowing them to have agency in their own conflict so that they're getting that self-esteem and self-confidence when bad things happen, but also hearing from us the balance, like you said, with the positive. I think um, I am a firm believer that after Columbine and after 9-11, most people that were starting to decide to have children in the early 2000s, like I did, um, we are parenting with a thin veil of terror on our heart. And so we are literally telling our kids and non-verbally and verbally, the world is not safe and I'm going to do everything for you and you're awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and we have beautiful children that I know so intimately um, graduating from our high schools with a 4.2 and they can't tie their shoe. People have told them their whole life, you're amazing, you're awesome, I engineered your whole life, now take flight. And they go to ASU Honors and they have a roommate smoking pot or bringing somebody back who's, you know, of the opposite sex. And they're like, I want to come home. I want to live at home. I can't handle this because we've done such a beautiful job of harboring them. And so I think there is a balance between the positive and then letting some really fantastically horrible stuff happen ages 9 to 18. That is my goal. And my audiences look at me like I'm crazy. Like, well, what does that mean? That means when Chloe's mean to her, you let Chloe be mean to her. And then you strategize with her what you're going to do the next day to stand up for your dignity. And I like safe, natural consequences as well. You know, we, we, you're talking about creating too much of a buffer. So when they go out in the real world, they're not prepared. We should protect them from things that are, you know, ridiculously dangerous, you know, physical threats and things like that. But I, I, I'm a fan of being able to let them wander into some safe, natural consequences and handling some things on their own. You gave a time frame. You not only gave a time frame, you mentioned two specific incidents, 9-11 and Columbine. We recently had Amy Carney on the show, and I asked, when did we start getting way too protective as parents? And she actually gave us same, pretty much the same time frame that you did, but then you also specified two incidents as well. And I, I, I've wondered when that, when that started. I, I could gauge about when it happened, but you named two particular things as well. And that's, that's interesting. Well, and then here comes the smartphone in 2005, six, seven. So then we had a way to track our kids. So I often in my digital wellness presentations have parents asking like, should I be tracking my kid? How much, et cetera, et cetera. Well, what the kids take away is the world's not safe. I can't go to the bathroom alone. I can't go to the park alone and I can't drive alone. And God forbid I st stop at Dutch Bros before I come home, even though I was supposed to go from A to B, I stopped somewhere and now my mom's blowing up my phone that I diverted from the plan. This is why our kids have very low maturity and social competence. We at Not My Kid, when we do the internet safety presentations for parents, we advocate monitoring software and things like that. What would your message be to parents who say, but I want to trust my child? I think you can have a monitoring app. You can have Life360. You can have Bark. You can have all of those types of things. It's how do you use it? 
it is a communication tool. So when we built the grade portal, for example, now I can see my kids' assignments, quizzes, and tests all day long, and I can choose how I communicate about that. Most parents use it as leverage in their parenting game. If you didn't do well, you can't go to the football game. Um, this whole Life360 and tracking and all of this, how do you use it as a communication tool? Like, hey, buddy, I saw you kind of diverted from plan. Was everything okay? Sure, yep. Like, it doesn't have to be this big, huge deal, and it shouldn't be. My parenting goal is I am hopeful by 16, 17, 18, my girls are self-governing, taking play, taking normal risks, and learning from them. What are three actionable steps, regardless of topic? You know, we've talked about internet safety. We've talked about suicide. We've talked about a number of things. What are three actionable steps that you would advocate to parents that upon finishing this episode, they could implement, whether they're really simple or not, that could potentially connect them better to their kids, improve things in their family, improve things with their parenting, et cetera? I think knowing the research, so getting a few good books, I'll just name my favorites. Absolutely, please do. Um, Untangled is all about girls age 9 to 18, Saving Our Sons, all about boys 9 to 18, Um, How to Raise an Adult is an amazing book for both genders, Um, The Self-Driven Child, amazing read about giving your child more choice and agency starting in kindergarten through 12th and beyond. Um, So knowing the research, number two, getting really clear as a family, how are we going to lead technology instead of technology leading us? Most families are being completely hijacked by a $1,000 device. Like their relationship with their child is hinging on this device. It's completely absurd. We've lost our minds. And big tech is not coming to save us. <laughs> um, and lastly, knowing how your children are wired. I have four girls. Two of them came as a pair. One's propensity for risk was present from birth. She, If she got on Snapchat, she would be a hot mess. The other one has no desire to be on any of it. And so knowing propensity for risk and knowing appropriate boundaries and consequences for each individual child And taking into consideration gender as well, I think is important because girls and boys are different and they sometimes act differently. I find a lot of um, parents that contact me are floored by they have an older daughter and a younger son and they can't seem to understand why the literacy skills and the maturity of their son isn't on par. And what we know to be true developmentally is there's a range there. Um, full development of of the brain is somewhere between 22 and 30, depending on who you are. And that is always going to be a spectrum. So I think really understanding that these brains need our guidance and support. And for the I generation, which is any kiddo born after 95, technology has stunted their social-emotional growth. So recognizing, like, even though he's 6 foot 2 and he's 14 (laughs) – he may be operating as an 11-year-old. I think that's important to note. I like that you take it on a case-by-case basis because there's patterns that we can three- see based on age. There's patterns we can see based on gender, but that that's not always going to be exactly the case. And I think that's one of the most important things in the world is taking everything on a case-by-case basis with that individual as a human being and the brain development. Everything comes back to that. You talk about you know the, the 14-year-old that looks like an adult – 
but is not an adult yet. And we cannot, as parents, get into the not my kid mentality where we say, you know, my son's a good son. He's, he's a smart kid. I genuinely believe that he's a good kid and a smart kid. But because the part of the brain that regulates impulses or anticipates risk isn't online yet, they're still prone to making impulsive decisions. Mm-hmm. Anything else that you would like to add? Any, anything else you want to include or perhaps we haven't discussed yet? I think just on the front of um, distress and crisis and social media and how they share messages with each other, I would highly, highly, highly recommend getting some sort of monitoring app that is only sending you what you want to know. So my favorite is Bark. I talk about it all the time everywhere I go, but um, bark.us is the website, and I'll give you the link. Um, It sends you, it runs algorithms on your kids' devices. And it sends you a report every night about anything that might be popping up. Distress, profanity, predation, luring, grooming, sexually explicit messages, um, messages about I want to end my life or you should go end your life. Anything that we fear, (laughs) it is capable of sending you a report on. And as I said, I think, you know, you have to decide how you want to use it. So I think it is most crucial for ages 9 to 16. Um, Everything you want to know about your child is on their device. And if you are not monitoring and supervising it, you are missing out on the pulse of how they're doing and the friendship group. And what we know to be true about our school shooters and about our students that are suicidal is six to eight weeks prior and every day after, they have posted and messaged their friends about their plan. And so people continue to kind of scratch their heads like, how did we not know about the school shooting? How did we lose this kiddo? And I continue to say to them, we have adults that are not doing what they need to be doing as far as monitoring and supervising. So... I feel so strongly and passionately about these poor teenagers that are receiving these messages like, I think today's the day I'm going to take my life. And we have not given them any training on what to do. And so really outlining for your student, if a child comes to you and says this, where can you go? What are your resources? And if you don't want to come to us as parents or school people, because I often hear from kids, I would never sell out my friendship with him. Um, we are losing boys in the state of Arizona four to one over girls. And I often hear from boys like, well, I knew he was struggling. I knew, you know, things weren't going well, but I felt like I would put him at risk if I told on him and I would lose his friendship and I'm not willing to do that. And so I think it's crucial that we understand that if we want to get in front of, you know, currently the two things that I hear most often parents are fearful of is school shootings and suicide it's so easy and apps like bark and our pact and all sorts of things like that do the work for you when we talked with paula jordan in our first episode she talked about you know kids being hesitant saying you know i don't want to betray the friendship by telling someone what he told me and and explaining to them that keeping that person alive so you can have that friendship it's great that you want to be loyal but knowing when to go to a trusted adult and say, you know, this person's considering suicide. This person's considering a violent act. And knowing that that's okay, that's not a betrayal of the friendship. But then also teaching them who. Who is the adult you can approach and how do you go about doing that? You mentioned everything being on their devices and on their social media. When we have had some of those situations that you've talked about and it's come out in an article 
a link to their Instagram or their social media. I've gone back and I've looked at some of these individuals and it was there. There were things weeks prior that were giant red flags. Now, some of them I can gauge because I've been in prevention for seven years. Some of them I would have noticed long before I had anything to do with prevention. It is laid out there. And it is so important for parents to be aware of that. I'm glad that you mentioned Bark. We actually have a 30-day free code. We can. Uh, I'm going to include the link uh, as 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 always. All the books that Katie mentioned, we will provide links to down in the show notes as well. We're going to provide a link to Bark's website, and then we'll also provide the the code, uh, which is not my kid. It's easy to remember to give you a 30-day free trial because it is something. I cannot emphasize enough the importance of exactly what you just said, monitoring software like Bark. And I love that you talked about using keyword phrases that you can set up things that will trigger that alert. This is not a parent trying to pry into every area of their child's life. This still allows them to have, you know, they can flirt with their girlfriend or boyfriend and mom and dad aren't watching that whole thing. They can have those healthy, independent, you know, moments for growth. But when there are those things that cross those lines and it does fall into the area where, okay, we do need to take action on this as a parent, it'll let you know that. And that's the balance. That's the whole thing. I've mentioned the word balance like five times in this conversation. That is that sweet spot that lets them have some of that autonomy and that independence, but allows us to keep them safe at the same time. Katie McPherson finally had you on the show, dozen plus episodes in. This has been absolutely tremendous. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Thank you for being here on Win This Year. Thanks for having me. And as always on Win This Year, we want to give you three resources. If you are struggling with thoughts of suicide or you are helping someone who is, there is help, there is hope, there are resources available. Number one is the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. You can reach them by calling 1-800-273-8255. That spells out 1-800-273-TALK. Teen Lifeline can be reached at 1-800-248-8336. That spells out 1-800-248-TEEN, T-E-E-N. And the Crisis Text Line can be reached by texting the word LISTEN to 741741. If you are going through a difficult experience, I want to encourage you. There is hope. Things can get better, but it is important to reach out and to ask for help. And for those of you who are noticing someone who is struggling, it is important that we reach out and we help them, that we start the conversation and we let them know we care and we will help. Thanks once again to our guest, Katie McPherson, and thanks to Bark. For providing us a one-month free trial, if you want to try out their monitoring tool, go to Bark.us and use code NOTMYKID for one month free. We'll include that down in the show notes as well. If you've enjoyed this episode, if you enjoy Win This Year, please be sure to subscribe, share, and spread the word. Win This Year can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and nearly every other mainstream podcast outlet. If you have questions or concerns, would like to suggest a guest or a topic for a future episode, email us at winthisyear at notmykid.org. Winthisyear at notmykid.org. As always, all links mentioned in this episode will be in the show notes along with all the links for Not My Kid's social media. I'm Shane Watson, public information officer and prevention specialist for Not My Kid, 
Thank you again for listening to Win This Year. 